Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? A fantasy book club hosted by me, Geordie Bailey. And by me, Duncan Nickel. Alright, Duncan, we are now in your court. We are entering a strange realm of fantasy. That we are, Georgie, that we are. So this is a Michael Moorcock novel, Elric mm-hmm. of Melanie Bonet. And trust me, people, yes, we have spent a long right. time debating that pronunciation. So if it's wrong... Indeed we have. Please, please don't tell us. Let us live with this. Yeah. We're in a wild space, Duncan. There's a character's name who begins with a Y. It's not pronounced Y. We are, we are in, in deep. God, Some, it's, it's wonderful. But I'll tell you now, this mm-hmm. is just the start. Some of the names in this. I had this issue I, I mentioned to you earlier, Georgie, where um, I, when I'm reading fantasy sometimes, you get those words, those wonderful mystical words that your brain just goes, that's just a symbol. I'm just going to compute that. Mm. I'm not going to try and say it. And Melanie Bonet is one of my worst. When I first came across Elric, um, I look, I never seen this name and just going, Melabrimborn. That's got some mm. of the same letters. That's a very Lord of the Ring pronunciation. Uh, oh my god, for, you're right, uh, it is. It is, it is. It's that kind of Tolkien yeah. just like, if Tolkien wrote this, he would have said it like that. And I'm just gonna, mm-hmm. that's fantasy, and I will not compute this new one. Uh, you've already brought up Big T, and I think he, he it's, it's, very, it's a good idea to bring him into this, because we are now talking about really, really influential fantasy. One of the reasons I really wanted to do Elric is because it's one of those books which I feel, along with, say... Um, Conan the Barbarian and similarly it's an, it's one of those books not that it isn't Tolkien it's one of those books where I believe the influences and the people that sort of maybe know about it by reputation far 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 outstrips the number of people that have actually read this book yeah that is definitely the case for me and Michael Moorcock uh, I know how influential his stuff is because I play Dungeons and Dragons and people tell me, I'm a big fan of Matt Colville. He's always talking about how influential Elric is. So I was so fascinated to read Elric and be like, oh, I finally get it. I finally see how this changed the escape of fantasy and played such a big role in my favorite game. You said that, Geordie, as if it didn't reading the book. So let's just go for that. Geordie, this is a book that I enjoy, a series that I have read all of it at this point. I've read mm-hmm. eight Elric novels and multiple other Michael Moorcock novels. I would call myself a fan of his works. Over the mm-hmm. last two weeks, how has your relationship with Michael Moorcock developed? Reading this. So book? as so, so as I said before, um, my in, my familiarity with Michael Moorcock is on his cultural impact, and I've heard in the past from people that his influence on the genre, the fantasy genre, exceeds the quality of his books that they are a great source of ideas, but that the actual writing doesn't hold up. I couldn't agree less. I loved this book. This was fantastic. That is, like, wonderful and actually really surprising to hear. Because even as a fan of his work, and maybe this because I've read quite a few of his other non-Elric works, I, did, mm-hmm. I didn't pick this book arbitrarily. You know, I was like, no, we'll start with Elric Melibone. It's a really good example. I already do... mispronounced it. He's already mispronounced it. Oh god, I, I'm, we're just gonna have to roll with this. We, yeah, we can't. We can't. Keep it's going. gonna happen so often. Yep. Eric of Melni Bonet. I even I would concede that sometimes his ideas 
outstrip the the way he writes his actual prose i i do generally feel that many times when i think back on his books i can think of scenes that are awesome or ideas or like these imagery of like godly beings i wouldn't go to michael moorcock just to describe me mm-hmm. a summer's day you know this is a guy that really brings sure. the fantasy that otherworldly nature and that is fantastic he really goes for the fantasy um quite a rule you mm-hmm. talk about in fantasy um people take on oh, we're going to world building you got to start small you know don't go straight in with the lords and the emperors find that farm boy and we'll enter there Moorcock doesn't do mm-hmm. that Moorcock's like right this mm. is our 998th supreme sorcerer emperor and this is how we're entering the world let's go people <laughs> uh i i you, you're completely right about how um how it throws you in at the deep end um uh, there's no calm introduction. There's no place where it even. There's not even like a thing where it says like this is the state of a the world. There's just Elric at a party having and a I miserable time. There is a key point here that some listeners who are a fan of El- uh, Michael, Mo- some listeners that are a fan of Michael Moorcock's Elric series, will probably be chatting about and maybe even screaming mm-hmm. about. And that is this book. It was not the first one published. So there is a debate about whether or not you should be reading this. Yes. This is in fact sort of a prequel to the Elric series. So when we discuss things about like, oh, he throws mm-hmm. you in. Well, to someone who might have read this when it was published, mm-hmm. there, there was an assumption that you might have read the other works. And I feel as a guy who made you read this, Geordie, I should say my argument, why I picked this book. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell me whether or not I mm-hmm. really fucked up and maybe I made a terrible mistake. And that impacted your experience. Right. So. Because Elric is supposed to start at the be- the end, right? So you know, it can feel like that to like a new reader. Because Elric starts with. Ah, oh, see, I almost like, I'm standing here like, oh, am I giving spoilers? But what I'm talking about is the beginning. And we've actually gone back and we're reading a prequel. So what am I doing? Um, so. Duncan, what order would a book written? People listening at home. Because I have spent a long time. I have a piece of A4 here with a timeline and little arrows going back and forth. Mm-hmm. The books of Elric were not written okay. as we say that. These were originally published in, I believe, it was Science Fantasy Magazine. These were short stories and novellas. And they later got sure. collected down the line into multiple different uh, fix up novels. Now, to give a general idea of how this progressed, I'm going to talk about how the fix up novels, that are like collections of short stories, as I've experienced them. There have been other collections in the world, and there are now. I think Del Rey are doing a different set of collecting the short stories. These are how I've read them. And it goes like this. First one published, Weird of the White Wolf. In This is the fourth one in chronological order. Then you get Bane of the Black Sword, which is the seventh one in chronological order. And then you get Stormbringer, which is the eighth one in chronological order. And now what you get there is actually a little trilogy. Wood of the White Wolf, Bane of the Black Sword, Stormbringer, all finishes off. But then, oh then, then Moorcock goes, but I have more stories. So he inserts between Wood of the White Wolf and Bane of the Black Sword, another book called Vanishing Tower, called Sleeping Sorceress. It has multiple names. Uh, But that's it. So you've got a trilogy and you've got an insert book, more adventures. But then finally he goes, right, people won't know where this all began. So I'm going to go back before Wood of the White Wolf. And I'm going to write Elric of Melnibone. And that's what we've read today. It is something that he wrote 
and has set himself. So this is the last book? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Because then he went God, to read... God, come on, Duncan. Um, Sailors on the Sea of Fate, which sits between Elric of Monobone and Weird of the White Wolf. So that patches them together. Sailors of the Sea of Fate has some short stories that originally were set late in the, in the series, but then were rewritten to sit earlier in the timeline. Then... Okay. So then you've got these six books. And that's how I first experienced these six books. In chronological order, mm-hmm. Elric and Melibone, Sailors in the Seas of Fate, Weird of the White Wolf, Sleeping Sorceress slash Vanishing Tower, Bane of the Black Sword, mm-hmm. Stormbringer. And then many years later, a good ten years I think he took a break, he came back and writes uh, two further novels. Fortress of the Pearl, which sits straight after Elric and Melibone, and Revenge of the Wait, that's... Okay. White Rose, which sits right after Vanishing Tower. And that gets you your eight... Eldrick books, not including the Moonbeam Road trilogy, which I do not know where that sits chronologically, or Eric at the End of Time, which I also don't know where that's meant to sit what? chronologically. That's a weird title. Oh, it's a crossover um, with his Dances at the End of Time series. And don't forget, Moonbeam Road is when uh, he goes after his version of the Holy Grail, and at one point fights out of Hitler. Okay, moving on. Oh god, I forgot that, that Michael Moorcock was a huge drug user. That's right, now it all makes sense. Michael Moorcock was um, a I, d- very... I didn't click until you said he fought Hitler. But I was like, oh yeah! Michael Moorcock is a huge fan. Uh, this is one of his greatest contributions, I feel, is the idea of like multiverse. And a lot of his characters, yeah. he wrote books, he wrote essentially historical fiction, he wrote multiple other fantasy series, but he was very keen on the idea that my historical fiction and my fantasy series, they're all in the same multiverse. Elric can walk mm-hmm. from whatever story I feel like to whatever other, and vice versa. And although in the... He wrote spy novels as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. He wrote spy novels. Um, he's written he's done some really good ones. Um, I, I, I want to recommend like a lot of his body of work. But, 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 coming back, why are we reading yes. this book? And mm-hmm. I think this is the book you should start with because, number one, Moorcock himself has gone on record and said he wrote it to be an introduction. Great, mm. word of the author. Don't want to argue with that man. Number two, sure. I think it's better than a lot of the works he'd written previously. I think this is slightly better than some of his short story collections, like Wood of the Right Rule. Okay. And number three, mm-hmm. if you read this one first, it then creates this sort of little trilogy almost between um, Eric of Menibone, Says on the Seas of Fate, and Weird of the White Wolf, which sort of gives you a nice little um, catch. But I thought Weird of the White Wolf was like super far towards the end. There's only book four in the chronological order, mate. But oh yeah, sorry, you're skipping over Fortress of the Pearl. I do recommend that Fortress of the Pearl and Revenge of the White Rose are just kind of saved until after. Save them till later. They're good, <sighs> but I feel they're quite different in tone. Ah, so the audio book which I got, um. To, to read this book is is volume one of Elric of Melnabone, which starts with Elric of Melnabone. I don't know why I'm pronouncing it like you, it's Melnibone. Um, the Fortress of a Pearl, <laughs> The Sailors of a Seas of Fate, and Weird of a White Wolf. So as you were going on your rant, I was like, wait, where does the fortress come in? Because of what I, I started after after finishing this book. It, oh, yeah, Fortress was written so much. Later. It's a really good book. Yeah, Duncan, I know that Terry Pratchett was super influenced by Michael Moorcock, and now I can see that the biggest thing he took away was, oh, I don't have to write my books in order. I can do whatever the fuck I like. It's empowering, isn't it? 
yeah, look at this guy. Doesn't give a shit. Honestly, it only really gets complex um, when you realise that so many of the short stories... Don't you dare say Eternal shot, Champions. Think... So, Eternal Champions. They've... Sorry. Um, not only has it not an order, Michael McCourt was quite well known for rewriting and rejuggling his order as he went. So there's a book, I believe it's called The Eyes of the Jade Man, or The Green Eye, The Green Eye Jade Man? I'm sorry, that's probably something on those lines, which got rewritten from being a sort of Bane of the Black Sword era story and reinserted into Sailors and the Sea of Fates. So you've got to go, well, which one's canon? Because they can't both be. Multiverse. Just, it's a multiverse. Just flow, gotcha. take it easy, read this one first. If long as you read Elric of Melniboni first and you read Stormbringer last, what happens in between, I think, um, doesn't super matter. Weird of the mm-hmm. White Wolf creates a nice epoch moment. Uh, the Dreaming City is very much the short story in that book, which sort of capsulates the first arc of Elric. Yeah. I think one of our projects for this later down the line, Duncan, when we really establish this podcast, is going to be uh, the creation of a um, the can- canonicity of big men with swords. Um, we're going to create the, the historical pipeline from... Uh, Elric back to Conan, down to Geralt, down to Guts, mix them all up and find out where they came from, what all the different influences are, and create this massive sprawling network of um of cultural exchange. Oh, that would be beautiful, because even when you said that, I'm already going like, well, you go back to Arthur, but then I'm like, no, no, yes. no, you go back to the Odyssey. No, Wait, I, no I, when I, do we... Arthur is exactly right, because my contention is, with that net in mind, that, that canonicity, I think Elric is a dark retelling of Arthurian myth. That's what I think, because obviously Elric, um, as an emperor who has to go on adventures, takes on a very King Arthur-like role. King Arthur has this juggling point between... The fact that he is a cultural hero who goes on battles, but also has a responsibility of being a king, which means a lot of his stories get farmed out to his knights. Um, Elric is also this character who juggles the responsibility of kingship with the need to go on adventures. I don't think his need to go on adventures is quite justified. Um, That is something I think is a little silly about the end of the book, but which I actually... um, I think works just fine. And of course, Stormbringer is the evil equivalent to Excalibur, the super sword. This thing which is basically makes him kind of invincible, but it is a dark, twisted version. Do you know what? That's such a... almost. I want to say, not to insult you, my friend, like an obvious take, but at the same time I'm sat here going, oh yeah, I didn't think of it like that. I have always looked at the Dragon Isle and gone... There's quite a Britain here. Okay. This a fallen... Oh, no, I don't know. Maybe I'm saying... Okay. Speak your mind. Speak your mind. A once powerful empire Mm -hmm. uh, emanating from a small little island. Mm. The younger nations rising up around it. And this sense of where do we sit in the world? And all these people clinging on to their past glories. Wow. Maybe that could be read for any empire. That's maybe that's, that's a it, great yeah. reading, Duncan. I didn't really put it together. When when did when was Michael Moorcock writing these books? The seventies, right? 
sixties and seventies. So that seems like a good period of time to be having those exact sort of little England thoughts, right? Absolutely, and that time when to really be transitioning from the sense of. I think it's that Menomonian sense of like superiority. Mm-hmm. It's not just that the empire's crumbled; it's that their own sense that they are better. Yeah. And having them to kind of come to terms with that, mm-hmm. those illusions of grandeur are being torn down. Something I really like about um, the the the, the Menomonians is that um, we're told they're not human, but they're not like elves. We're not told in the ways that they're actually special because. The only person who's given, like, particular physical descriptions is Elric, and that's his al- albinism. But um, the, there's nothing really, at least in my reading of the book, that made it clear how Meldabonians and humans were remotely different at all. Do you know what? I'm now thinking through the rest of the series. I can't remember, because this is the thing. They reference how Meldabonians uh, are, 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 like, magic practitioners. Yeah far more than the the humans of the world. Not that the humans can't use magic, mm-hmm. but it's far more ingrained in the Melbourneian kind of like culture. Sure. Now, I can't remember if there was meant to be something inherent or if there was a, a long-lived element of this. I do know in one particular short story in Sailors of Seas of Fate, they, there's a story called Sailing to the Past mm-hmm. where Elric does explore... Well, I say Elric. Moorcock <laughs> explores um, the sort of the origins of the Melbourneians and there are some revelations there which I don't particularly want to bring up now because mm-hmm. um, I think it is best experienced for the first time in that story. Mm-hmm. But that is a very, very good point and something I do believe Moorcock is doing quite intentionally. My, my telling point you here different, and my supposition... Yeah, my supposition is that Melnabonians are just humans. They're humans with a culture which goes back a long ways and they might be more uh, technologically advanced. But I reckon they're probably just people. And the reason they call themselves Melnabonians and not humans is that they're racists. They you basically like eugenicists. They say we are of a better stock, and therefore we feel superior to these other, in our view, lesser people. But as we said before, their empire is dying. Their day is done. And how did you feel reading this, um, not knowing, you know, so? where we were going at the start of the story when you kind of get introduced to elric and you realize he's the head of a a very evil empire although a failing one mm-hmm. how did that affect your kind of your opening relationship with our main character well my re- just actually talking about that when you first met elric yeah what were your impressions when i first met elric it was like meeting an old friend because the thing about the big impression which elric has left on culture is that he's really easy to sum up in one sentence. The chronically weak albino king of an evil nation who has discovered in himself a conscience and has to struggle between his personal conscience and his role as king of an evil empire. And that had been drilled into me so many times that when I found him and was just like, oh... That's kind of literally what he is. There isn't a lot more to him than has been summed up basically in a Wikipedia article. And that wasn't a negative feeling. That was like, yeah, fair enough. I I wasn't even moved to the positive or negative by the fact that what I saw was what I got. Um, He is a very 
uh, utilitarian protagonist for this sort of story. I'm sure there was a certain, um, you know, shocking element to it back when these books first came out. But uh, morally conflicted heroes are so, um, so dime a dozen, probably because of Elric, that I was like, yeah, well, whatever, sure thing. He does read, when you're looking from a sort of a canon of like sword building heroes, he does uh-huh. read like someone's gone out and gone a very, right, let's do an, an anti um, Fafnir or an anti Conan kind of tick list. Mm-hmm. You know, Conan, bronze skin, okay, he's a pearl uh, guy with a binarism. Yep. Okay, um, muscular, he's weak, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't care about his weapon, okay, special sword, mm-hmm. repulsed by magic, okay, is a lonely wanderer, okay, this guy's an emperor. It's like someone's just gone, right, what's the anti of the current hero? Sure. I'm going to forge him. Uh-huh. And since and then, I... we've had plenty of other pale boys. Uh, you're more likely to come across, uh, you know, um, brooding, dark, uh, dark-hearted, dark pale-skinned uh, anti-heroes in fantasy these days than not. That's just the current. I'm going to agree. I, do you know what? As you said that now, my brain's kind of racing through them. I'm going... Yeah, who? How many are there? My first thought was always Dritzt. I was like, "Hello, Elric. Nice to see you again." In terms of, um, probably I would probably go for the more obvious of Geralt. You know. Yep. One of the white most hair. Lines. I think he's even called the White Wolf, right? He is indeed. I would always say Geralt yeah. is one of the most closest. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of Elric in this man. So, I think we talked a lot about kind of the influences. Let's just dive in now. Firstly, I recommend this book, Geordie. Mm-hmm. Do you recommend people this book? Do you recommend it to everyone? Do you recommend it to people with a particular taste or interest? I recommend Moorcock to pretty much all fantasy fans. I'm like, give it a go. You know, this is the book. Mel- Elric of Manibone is the book to start with. Mm-hmm. It's short. Yeah, it's punchy. I've... You're not going to lose a lot. Give it a try. Uh, I, I, I think I do recommend it to most people. I recommend it to anyone who's kind of remotely interested in the, the legacy and history of fantasy, which is definitely the right person to listen to this podcast, I think, as opposed to someone who's interested in... um, I think th- reading this book, it was so anti-modern fantasy books. Like, um, it, it struck me how um, so much of this book... There's one, like, chapter in this book which would basically be the sequel to... The entire sequel to the first half of the book, okay? So the first half of this book, events happen, something bad happens to Elric, and if this were a modern fantasy book, or even a... Very specifically, in my point of view, had been written for, like, for a YA fantasy audience... An entire book would have been written about the part of the story where Elric is feeling sad. That would be an entire <laughs> bit of someone walking around, wallowing, occasionally talking to people about how they feel. And instead, it's it's a one chapter, and then he summons the king of all demons. So, um, it won't jive with a lot of people's um, tastes for fantasy, but I might recommend it as a fantasy detox if it's not something you tend to listen to. So yes, for different reasons, I would recommend this book to a lot of fantasy fans. Especially if you like Terry Pratchett. But yeah, with that in mind, shall we crack on to the spoilerific section? Ah, oh, let's go for it. So, people, 
of the world. For those that have uh, potentially listening to this and have not read Elric, but you're still listening, so clearly Bye-bye. you don't mind about the plot. Mm-hmm. Let's go. As we said, Elric sits on the throne of a dying empire, an, e- an explicitly evil empire. But yep. he is a weak man kept alive by magic and drugs. Mm-hmm. But in these kind of dying Walker. moments, he's grown a bit of a conscience. He's 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 tapped into that um, Mitchell and Webb sketch. He's he's looked about with <laughs> the skulls and the dark towers and his blood ruby throne and gone. Are we the bad guys? I'm gonna say something for um, in regards to this idea of uh, Elric having a conscience. I think he's kind of having a bit of his cake and eating it too, because whilst Elric does have to balance the fact that he is um, an emperor and therefore has to walk the cultural line of Meldebone, there's something to be said for the fact that um, when the novel gives him justification, the novel is very much on his side when it comes to metering out uh, very dark violence and bloodshed specifically talking about like the punishments he divvies on people who are traitorous to him the book gets you on his side and is like oh you he puts you in elric's shoes and gets you to sort of play into your dark impulses towards retribution and then it sort of says okay you're a good guy but you can imagine why elric in this situation would want to um to enact bloody ruin and you're like, I guess I kind of do get it, but you don't really get to play the, oh, but he's a good guy card when he's going to feed someone to his, like, dinner guests. Yeah. Do you know, when you say it like that, when I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 all oh, that's harsh of it, but yeah, you're... And then you look at it like, yeah, no, that's... that That's like a, a, an extra set. That's like a pleasure in what he's... The, sort of the evil that he's doing. And it is something that really gets explored later when it comes to further guilt. But you're right, this is the beginning of him starting to grow conscious. He still does some horrific things. In terms of the structure of this story, you know, this is the story of Elric. You know, he's growing conscious, but then before you even think mm-hmm. about it, um, his kingdom is attacked. He repulses that attack. Mm-hmm. But his cousin, who's long since gone, you're not right for the throne, has coveted his throne, attempts a coup. And several, yeah. Duncan, his cousin. I'm going to count to three, and we're going to say his name at the same time. Ready? No. Let's see if our pronunciations are the same. Three, two, one. Yakun. Hey! Oh, well done. All right, carry on, Duncan. I'm going to have to admit to everyone, I, I, I looked that up. I pronounced it Yakun for literally five years of my life. It's like Emir Duncan. Whatever. Of course. There is an attempt at a coup, and after a number of events, Yakun Yakun uh, flees the city he and takes with him Elric's lover, Yakun's sister, Simur. Wait for it. Sim- okay. okay, never mind. <laughs> he said it. I was going to do it again, but it, I think that one's a lot easier Simuril. to pronounce. Simuril. Elric, after moping, Think some sort of the Lord of Chaos, and eventually gives yep. chase. He becomes a warlock. He decides to split class out of being a fighter and becomes a warlock. 
summons forth a boat that goes on both land and sea, which is a visual that it did take the graphic novel to truly for me to truly get. And he goes off and hunts okay. him. Uh, the climax of the story, he saves Cimmeril, but Yakun Yakun flees into another dimension. Elric follows, and mm-hmm. in this other land, he finally comes across the weapon that will define him for the rest of the book series, his magic blade, Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. He beats Yakun, he goes back, and, and then we have the ending, which he does something which, I'm not going to lie, to this day, I just think is so stupid, and I can only see it in the context that it moves the plot along. But oh no, I disagree. This is this is the part where I say that is the compelling part of a story. It is stupid. That's the point. Um, because Elric has a conscience, he doesn't just execute Irkun, his cousin, for his treachery. He um he forgives him, and he puts him on the throne as regent. What else? Whilst Elric goes on his adventures. And that is a far more uh, engaging bit of moral complexity than the, oh, I have to indulge in dark retribution even though I'll feel sad about it later. The fact that he makes this act of great mercy and generosity and you're immediately like, that was a bad idea, puts you in a much more difficult frame of mind as a reader. Because you're now on the side of saying, you shouldn't have done that thing, which is probably good. You should have done an evil thing and killed him. I think you're right, because you're right, as a reader, I am then like, you should have killed him. I do feel there's a difference, though, between mercy and, listen, I know you just attempted a coup, but what I'm going to do is, I'm going to install you as regent on the throne, and then I'll go into exile for a bit. Does that sound like fun? Instead of, you know, the other way around. I'm a shrugging. I'm shrugging. He made a stupid choice, and I find it way more compelling him making a stupid choice than a smart utilitarian choice. It does get us where we need to be. I also like that it's not... I also like that the justification isn't by killing you, I would become just as bad as you. He doesn't give a shit about that. He knows he's not as bad as Aikun. He's just trying to be good. I think you are bringing me around to this slightly. Because you're right, it's not... You're right, it's not Moorcock doing something stupid. We're very much known. Mm-hmm. This is Elric making a decision that we can identify as not maybe not the best, but yep. to be fair, that's only defined by his goals. We're thinking, well, you want to keep ruling your empire. Elric at this point is really starting to think, I don't give a shit about the empire. Really, it's on Simmeril. <laughs> He's like, Simmeril, you should be empress, and she's like, No, I won't. I don't have the bloodline for it. I'm like, Okay, well, I guess I'll have to put Iacoon on the throne, and she's like. Well, maybe I reconsidered my, my ethical objections to it. Maybe I will be on the throne then. Now it's like, nah, too late. Moving on. Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, like, so let's talk about um, Eric's um, moral, I'm doing, I'm doing air quotes, air quotes here, moral complexity. Um, I like the framing of it comes through the eyes of Divimtar, Eric's, like, right-hand man. I think it's a really good idea to have a lot of people's reaction to him framed through someone who is very loyal, but can't help but think like, what the fuck is up with this guy? Why is he acting so strangely? I think it really improves uh, upon if it was just Elric's own perspective. Because then you always have that kind of that extra, mm-hmm. oh, is it unreliable? How's Elric been presenting himself? But when you get someone else, it, it kind of creates this extra like honesty to the actions we're, we're, we're seeing as a reader. 
Um, I do mm-hmm. like it because you're right. Because he's not—he's not—he's not, he's not a bad person. You know, he's—he's he's loyal. He's—he's he's nice. He's a friend, but he is so ingrained in these cultural, um, these problematic cultural. I don't the cultural norms of Melda exactly, which are horrific. That he can't—he can't, he can't mm-hmm. see them for wrong. They're just tradition. They're just traditional yeah. values. You know, traditional exactly. Melda values. They can't be wrong. And they just happen to be mm-hmm. that we occasionally eat our prisoners, you know? Yeah, and let's talk a little about the evil of Meldabone, because it, 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 it averts itself in obvious and subtle ways. Dr. Jest. So, for example, they don't... One thing that's made clear is they don't really have any ideas of things like mercy. Um, that's just... It just doesn't really make sense. And in that way, they become sort of monstrous, like... These people um, don't give a damn about the lives of other people. They wantonly slaughter human beings as lesser creatures. Those are the obvious ways um, in which they're just bad, you know? Eating people. They also have, like, specially engineered slaves, um, which is obviously very grim. Um, The place where I find it, like... Do you also see a sense of the way they treat... Uh, humans as a sort of lesser race it actually has quite a few parallels mm-hmm. to how you know if you just take it how we today treat um sort of animals in the meat industry you know they're cattle they're to be slaughtered we do genetic modifications breeding programs to get what we mm-hmm. want it's really just kind of moving up the chain where we're like well you know it's whole you can't do that to a human but you can do that to a cow they're just going oh sure. we're menobonians you know you can you know, can't do that to a fellow menobonian but of course you can do it to a human very um vampire-esque isn't it you know, well, we're just a ne- we're just exactly. the next level up the food chain. It's it's normal. Yeah, I think that's I think that's I think you're on the on the money there. The way that uh, people are you know categorized and used for their function instead of their personhood is um, a very relevant way in which um you know we literally dehumanize, uh, turning the dehumanization of things like animals or the people whom we believe to be lesser than us um and reflecting it on the entirety of humanity itself and it points out the evil of it yeah i think it's a sort of slightly basic but um useful allegory thank you for calling me basic i take your compliment and pride (laughs) do you also say though because we talked about these evils there's another element which i really want to hold on to because there's yes you've got this Mm -hmm. um no mercy but that can always follow up with like a practical sense. Oh yes, no, we're very practical. But there is a level of, I'm going to say almost sadism to this culture. There is a joy in the cruelty that they have. Maybe not so in Elric, but in um, the people. What would you say to that? I think it, I interpret it more as a banal acceptance, and that's sort of what I what I focused on before. My idea, my particular focus of this is is Cimmeril. Because Cimmeril is kind of in in taking on the role of uh, romantic interest to our hero, is sort of framed in the best light possible. Since we see her through Elric's eyes, um, he sees the best in her, and yet she's really unable to reflect on the potential evils of Melnibone. Um, you know, when they ha- go for their horse riding session, um, you know, Elric brings up some of the moral compunctions to having, and she just doesn't get it. 
And I think what we take away from that isn't that Cimmeril delights in cruelty. She just doesn't have a conception that what she's doing and what her society does is wrong. You see, as you say that now, I, I don't want to bring too much of my own kind of belief, but it almost it, that really does resonate uh, with me on sort of my... Um, so for the podcast, I'm, I'm a vegetarian, and it's a very similar resonance mm-hmm. when you're like, people who eat meat, your free choice. But it's not like, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you don't think it's not wrong. You're not sitting there going, oh, ha, 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 I have killed the baby cow today. Exactly. You're just getting on with life. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're right. That mm-hmm. is very much what's been captured here in Cimmeril. So I've now got this impression of people Let's eating ex- chicken nuggets going, ha, ha, ha. Um, one sec. Mm. I think that moral skew is also, Morcott does a very, I think, quite clever thing in his world building here. Yeah, and, and that's talking about the gods and godly beings in this world. Yeah, let's move on to world building. Let's move on to that because you mentioned earlier uh, the D&D influences. And there's one that I really yeah. like. And that is, as far as I'm aware, mm-hmm. and please, the universe, I may be very wrong, I'm sure there's deep connections, but Moorcock was one of the first people that I ever read who really went, we don't have good and evil gods here. We have law and chaos. Mm. And both are uh, capable of good and evil. Yeah. And I think that really works well with this moral skew that we're dealing with the Melibonians, you know, because we're not setting these hard good and evil reference points. We're setting... Mm-hmm. law and order versus chaos and that allows you then to navigate the world in a greater sense of more kind of more grayness i think a lot more modern i'm going to use the term dark fantasy now it's my turn to use air quotes and i'm going to use really hard mm-hmm. air quotes if i ever say the word grim dark fantasy because i know what mm-hmm. that isn't air quoting really really hard um okay don't don't quote don't hurt yourself don't quote too hard too late um where we do, we, we don't set these strong reference points so that the characters can insert this uh, greyness of, okay, what are our objectives? Is it our methods that define us? What are our goals? And that's where we get Elric. Mm-hmm. He serves, you say, he's some sort of the Lord of the Demons. Uh, this Duke. Oh, name time. Got the uh, Lord of Demons name? Oh, God. Uh, no, I don't have it to hand. Ah. Uh, okay, then. In that case, I will just say. Uh, so, he summoned forth the Lord of the Demons, Duke Oroshi. No, 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 stop. He sounds forth the Lord of the Demons, Duke Aroch. Duke Aroch. I don't remember the name, but I'm not, I don't feel any kind of, ah, yes, of course, when you say that. Okay, so we've got, we're going to call him Demon King, but that kind of validates my point a bit. But he is, he, he comes forth and he mentions the war to come, a lot of foreshadowing. And he is portrayed as this more sort of this darker being. Mm-hmm. But there's a really strong point to make her that you know, with all the... Because we talk about the elementals as well. Oh, you mean Arioc? Arioc! Yeah? Of course that's how you pronounce it. Because it's something for the Lord of Chaos, and he just references, you know, this sort of bargain. It has this kind of Faustus uh, feel. You know, don't make a deal with the mm-hmm. devil, kids. But in this particular mm-hmm. case, it works out kind of spiffingly, to use a Britishism. <laughs> and although the novel just leave it with a I'll call on you one day... I think it's kind of yeah. nice that it does kind of leave on a relatively positive note. It's true. He does have a really helpful relationship with Arioc. I was kind of surprised that Arioc was so helpful. And I guess that's a smart move on Michael Moorcock's part to be like, yeah, it is tempting to call on these dark powers, 
because it does feel like you can get your own way, especially at the end of the book, where Elric does a great bluff with Ariok and says, I need you to get me what you, I need you to give me what I want. Take all three of us home. And Ariok says, I'm not taking uh Rakish. I name? got a Rakir. Rakir. Yeah, Rakir. Um, he says, I'm not taking this red priest home. He's a traitor to the Lords of Chaos. And Elric says, well, you have to take him. Otherwise, I'm not going. And you would not have sent me here if you didn't want me to return alive. You have plans for me. I can see that. And by bluffing with this guy, he gets what he wants. Ariok, like, grumbles a bit. And then he sends them all home. And it's this strange moment of, wow, I didn't think that that you'd be able to just sort of like um, really win a bargain with this Lord of Chaos. It's almost humanizing. We'll see how that bears out in future we, books. We will. It's, it's a great relationship. I don't want to go because we're not talking about those books, but I really do love how mm-hmm. Eric, because it, it really is, a, it's not just a deal with the devil. It is a, it's a patronage. And there's this constant back and forth, mm-hmm. which is Eric is, you know, has plans for Elric, and how far can Elric push him before payday? Because Elric will yeah. not let El- Elric die until he's done his purpose. But that just makes Stormbringer such a good novel. Okay. Well, there we, there we go. That's for another time. Uh, considering my how positive my reaction was to this book, one day we might well get all the way to Stormbringer. Speaking of Stormbringer. Um, Stormbringer was basically all I expected, uh, to get in this book. Uh, I had, um, I've had so much exposure to Stormbringer's presence in other books, um, including, and especially, um, the D&D equivalent, Black Razor, which has appeared as a very important part of multiple campaigns I've been in, uh, that I've run. Um, I fucking love Black Razor. And by extension, I love Stormbringer because it is fed the same thing. They're literally exactly the same. Um, and um, and I guess I, and, and once again, much like my introduction to Elric himself, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is exactly what I expected. Uh, evil sword can, can kill at a touch, channels its strength into Elric, literally the only thing that surprised me was that the moment Elric picked it up, it immediately gave him strength. And I was like, oh, that was generous of you, Stormbringer. That's very kind of you. Uh, as opposed to making him go through a dark bargain while he has to slaughter people to gain the strength to keep surviving. All in good time. All in good time. Yeah. I really liked it. I found this uh, section. So this also is a reread for me. And there were two things that kind of stood out. One is that Stormbringer... The character of Stormbringer doesn't really come through mm-hmm. in this one um, as much as it later gets developed. I do feel that the, the yeah, the... I was surpri- I thought it would be more present. I know it's an intelligent being, so I was like, I'm really surprised it isn't making itself more known in this. It's also a bit more of a pushover than I expected. <laughs> um, how how so? Actually, yeah, expand on that. Well, in, in the fights with Irkun, there's an excellent bit where Elric says, like, um, I'm in control here. If you want me to win this fight, you have to play my way, which is what he does with Ariok. 
And I was kind of surprised that Stormbringer sort of conceded so willingly. Um, the two of them basically immediately start fighting in conjunction. I really liked how um, the sword guides itself. It gives strength to its swing. And thus, when they fight in, in tandem one another, they're very strong. Um, but, but there's one part where Stormbringer goes for a killing blow and Elric has to wrestle the swing out of the way so as to not kill Irkun. Yes. It is a lovely bit of foreshadowing for their whole relationship mm-hmm. that moment. Is the, you yeah. really get a sense that this sword, like, um, this sword, like Eriok, has its own sort of motivations and needs Elric. And uh, It's funny you say that it's such a pushover. Mm-hmm. I think it's similar to the way that Eriok is. It's this being that's like, I have plans for you. So for the time being, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you have what you want. Don't you worry. Paydays are coming. A lot, since this is such an influence on D&D, a lot of what I do is I am picturing Michael Moorcock sort of as a dungeon master. And I think he would be a great one because if Elric were a player character in a game, He's giving him a lot of rope to hang himself with. Even though people want Elric to do things, it's really impressive that he's still permitted a lot of agency. You know, he is subject to destiny, but it still feels like he has a lot of free will, which is interesting because the way in which destiny and free will play into stories is often... I think, a bit clumsy. It's sort of hand-waved, oh, forces of destiny were at hand, and it can make it something a bit uncompelling. But in this, I think that um, it's a really well-done, delicate touch, where the force of destiny feels like this thing which is hanging over your shoulder the whole time, and other people seem to know about its course better than you do. It really gets a sense across that the destiny, it's not this, it's not this like almost predetermined path in the sense that Elric can't stray from it. It's the sense that Elric, yep. in being Elric, by just being himself, mm-hmm. can't walk down any other path. It does raise up a slight um, ethical question I had, which is that when he goes to speak to the Lord of Water for the second time, um... The Lord of Water says, Ah, I see you have communed with Ariok. I will not hold it against you, because you have, if you have done it, then it must be because it was your destiny. And then I put my metaphorical book down, I was listening on audiobook, and I went, that means he can do anything. <laughs> that means anyone can do anything. If destiny um, approves of what you do, then whatever you do is justified. <laughs> So we can do whatever he wants now. I don't think that's quite what they're saying. I, I often read this as him saying, no, for you to be able to have communed with this specific Lord of Chaos, it has to have been your destiny. The Lord of Chaos mm-hmm. doesn't pick up the phone unless it's destiny, you know, literally telling mm-hmm. him to. So that's sort of where I'm seeing it coming from. Not that Elric, in doing Destiny's past, can do anything. But only those predestined mm-hmm. to be able to commune with the great, you know, the gods of this world, are ever going to get through. Mm. That's my mm. that's my step back. I it, wonder. I would say that that is an interpretation, and not as written. Mm-hmm. 
well, we, we, we maybe we'll see at some point in the future. Um, I, I'm compelled by good stories that deal with the topic of destiny. Um, I... Oh, actually, I can't, I can't bring that up because, Duncan, you haven't experienced this yet. Never mind. I, I can't, I can't tell you about the legend of Vox Machina. No, don't spoil that for me. Yeah. The TV show to get yeah. there. I like Destiny in very much the more mm-hmm. abstract sense. I, I, I hate it. I hate the predestined hero. And I'm not going to, I, I actually mm-hmm. do, actually, I say that. I enjoy things like the Belgarade, uh, the Belgrade series and these sort of destined Belgariad? I enjoy the Belgariad. Jesus, Duncan. Uh, you know, we've got these, but they always seem to diminish it for me. I don't think things benefit from the idea. Do you know what? That's a terrible mm-hmm. example because actually that has my best. That book has one of my favourite talking scenes about destiny ever, actually. So I'm going to take that back. Um, no, fuck it, Georgia, you can edit this. Out. Is that one being. Is the Bill Garrett being added to the list, Duncan? Because I only read like the first two chapters of that. I'm not sure if I would actually add it to the list. Um, okay. Fuck it. You can edit this out, Georgie. I'm talking to you now because I want to tell this scene because it's such a great scene. There's a scene in that book where they talk about destiny okay. and this character's literally communing with his god. And he's like, mm-hmm. remember when you were a child and you tried to throw the stone at light and knock that um, like vase off the fence, but you messed up your aim and it went through the window? I think Charles like, yes. Well, imagine if that vase was the source of all evil and the window with the fabric of reality... And Charles goes, yes. And the god goes, okay, let's imagine that when you threw the first stone and you saw it was about to go through the window and destroy your reality, you were to quickly throw a second stone to knock the first stone to hit it back on course. And Charles goes like, yes. And the god goes, you're the second stone. I messed up. Mm. That is, that. that's really, I love that. That's great. I might keep that in. It's good says, uh, we might touch on it later. It's very different, mm-hmm. but definitely a young form of why I think in more lines of Percy Jackson uh, than maybe some of the epic fantasies it does get compared to. Back to yeah. Elric. Why is very broad? Why is such a broad topic? I've been, I've, I'm on, I'm on the YA lit Reddit, and people talk about Percy Jackson all the time. Percy Jackson is not YA. Percy Jackson is what we call middle school fiction. It is for twelve year olds. Um, All I'm going to say is, I, I mean, I read started reading it when I was seven. Like, um, that's that shouldn't be in the same category as like I don't know, uh, Ember in the Ashes. I read it when I was 22 and had a blast. I mean, I I, I don't doubt they hold up. I mean, I remember absolutely freaking loving them. The first book series I ever read currently with release. Wow, that is a true fact. Um, I read, I started reading them. Um, when the second book was out in paperback, the first edition of its paperback with its hideous, hideous cover. And my my granny was coming over from the United States and I begged her to bring me the just released hardcover of the third book, which wouldn't come out in the UK for a while because um, back then you had to wait for things to come out in the UK. <laughs> they were dark times. I remember Artemis Fowl was the one that I followed when I was younger. Mm-hmm. i just been like, please, next one, next one. I know I'm going to an airport, and they had mm-hmm. it there, and I was like, please, Mom, I it's... need this for the plane. She was like, but we already bought a book. I'm like, no, but this is a better book. <laughs> Do you remember which one that was? Um, I think that was, uh, is it The Lost Colony or The Last Colony? 
Uh, I think it's the fifth book. Uh, the one with the demons. Yeah, that's the one about the demons. Yeah. yeah, I think that is the fifth book. That's right. Let's move on. Let's have a let's have a section. I was like, so those are kind of key themes. Let's hit maybe on a few like key characters. You know, Elric the star of the show, but is there anyone else that really jumped out for you? Because there's one in particular that I love, and one in particular who's referenced, but doesn't become a big character till later in the series. I would love to know if you can work out who that is. Someone who's in the story, but doesn't take a big role in it until later in the series? Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yes, there is. There's someone who who's literally has a little mention in this one. And I was like, I wonder to a first-time reader whether or not there's enough of a mention to make you go, oh, he stood out, that's, or whether or not you just glazed over it. That's interesting. The only person I can think of who would take that role would be, like, the guy who armors Elric. Is that him? I'm trying to remember who is the guy that armors Elric now. That's a guy who puts Elric's armor on him. Um, I'm going to say it is probably not. Okay. The guy in question is Divin Slorm. Oh, one of Divin Tar's children. Yes. Interesting. Oh. Well, that leads me... I guess the Elric stories take place over a long period of time then. Oh, they do. Wait, how long... I thought he was only going to be with for like five years. Sorry? I thought Elric was like, I'm going to be on my journey for five years and then I'll be back. Yeah, and that's Sadus of the Seas of Fate. And then he comes back. And oh. that's weird with the White Wolf. Damn, I, I kind of figured it would be like most of the series would be in those five years. Okay, I think we've got to hit on a point here. Cause we, we've talked about chronologically. I think this is very relevant to talking about the perspective of this story. Uh -huh. The first Elric story ever written, Geordie, is called The Dreaming City. Yes. Do you want to know what happens in that story? Uh, d does he go to a city full of dreaming people? He returns to the capital city of the Dragon Isles oh. with a massive fleet and and raises the city to the ground. And that's the original opening of Elric. What? And he slaughters the entire Melibonian race. And that's the original beginning. What? Holy mackerel! I guess Urkun was up to some shit. It makes such a difference to read this in a different chronology, and I'm sorry I spoiled that. No, I'm. That makes me really readers. excited to uh, to read the rest of his books now. That's crazy! I can't believe it. Wow. And that's the, and that's it. That's the short story. That is literally it's him on the boat of his fleet. The story is the fight for the city, and it ends with him sailing away, being like, "Yep." That place is on fire. Well, hopefully he can morally justify that one. And it wasn't just for this sword was thirsty. Anyway. Um, 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 um. Favourite characters. I assume Divim Slaw isn't your favourite character in this book. No. In this book, besides Elric himself, who really did uh, take over this with me, I actually really did enjoy... Shall we say... His father. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, his father. Oh, yes, I really Divintar. Uh, I was supposed to say Elric's father. I was like, oh, another character. Who... No, that's, a, that's in a later book. Don't worry. I, you, I knew um, it when you talked about time travel. I knew he was going to meet his dad. 
Oh, Eric when he of d- Melnabone in Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, no, the one when he goes to the modern day, 1980s, that was quite a one, wasn't it? Oh, my God. Sorry, what? Are you kidding me? I am kidding you. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, no, I enjoyed Divintar, uh for the same reasons that we sort of discussed earlier. I really like the fact he's this sort of classical Melibonian perspective, mm-hmm. but unlike uh, Ekun, he's not. He's not an evil. He's not a bad guy. He's not the big bad guy, you know. But he's a really nice sort of the average Melibonian mm-hmm. who you're right. It really encompasses this. I'm loyal to Elric. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing for things to change. But I just don't get this whole morality thing he's he's gotten onto. Maybe it's a phase. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I like that. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. It really humanized. Ironic. But I found it's the most humanizing perspective mm-hmm. on the average Melibonian. Hey, absolutely. Yeah. You get this interesting sense of um, of Divimtar as a stand-in. Like, I can see how this person could be reprehensible, but is also tolerable to me. And therefore to Elric, that uh, this is someone I kind of need to go on this adventure with me. Because for me, he provides a perspective. And for Elric, he needs backup and support. He also um, rides dragons. He does. And but they great. don't really, surprisingly, not that present in, um, <laughs> in this book. Because they're sleeping, Georgie. You can't wake up the dragons from their sleep. Oh, the dragons uh, are so tired from their last expedition. Ear-coon! Taking the dragons out and taking them on a, uh, on a on a ride that gets them exhausted. Now they can't track down the enemy fleet, idiot. It's a great kind of element there, just kind of quickly tie that in, where it's like, you know, you can see where the you know, they had this power. A bit like in uh, Song of Ice and Fire. Exactly, exactly what I was oh thinking of. Oh my god, what's another? Another complete and utter... Riff off? No, loving homage, mm-hmm. obviously, with the um, Targaryens. Yeah. Um, the pale, pale-skinned dragon riders from that island that had a mighty empire that fell. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I really like the idea that these are really powerful. You know, these are the definitive weapon in war, mm-hmm. but they have like limited use. They have a long recharge on them. <laughs> so it's like, I understand how this empire was built, but they're not just going to make the story irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not just going to be wheeled out. It's not the eagles, you know. They're great when they come in, mm-hmm. but they can't just ride them to Mordor. I wonder if they'll play another role in the later books. God, i got to read these books. I'm actually really excited to give them a read at some point. They're so quick and punchy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I really like about them. You can, and of course, they're a lot of short story formats. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few uh, novels. Um, there are only three. This one, um, Fortress of the Pearl and Revenge of the White Rose, which I recommend you read later. The rest are all short story collections. Interesting. So it really builds it. Back to main characters, though. So that's my favourite. Yeah. Georgie, who did you like? Love Rakir. I love him. He's so weird. He's fantastic. Rakir. Can you imagine? Rakir. There is yeah. no... There, he's, he's the greatest influence this book gave to Dungeons & Dragons. It is not um, the, the, the way in which the planes exist in orbit around the main, like, true dimension. It is not the way that each dimension is kind of uh, a sing has a singular characteristic, like going to a dimension which is entirely underground, for example. It is not the distinction between law, chaos, and evil. It is not the way that demons are just one aspect of evil in the world, but not the be all and end all. 
it is a fact that Eric goes to a new place and immediately runs into um, a new character to join his party. They couldn't come up with a reason at the table for Divim Tar to continue on um, Eric's adventure. So Divim Tar's player was like, well, I came up with a new archer character, so we'll just have him immediately meet and join Eric as soon as he arrives. I really like how it. I found it's very much expanding of the world as well. Because mm. Rakir, although he's like, I'm going to join with you, Elric, he's also like, yeah, I have my own quest going on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I'll come along with you for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is such an, is this... a, 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 a laissez-faire manner to the world building in this book where, you know, in, in, in the perfect fancy uh, manner, sprinkling things across, say, haphazardly throwing him out, allowing you to build up a picture of it in your head. And Rakir is a great example of that, because we meet someone from this other country uh, with their own values and their own uh, relationship to the Lords of Chaos. And, um, and so now I'm like, I wonder what other strange people this world contains. He also drops in this little reference that you do not get on the first read mm-hmm. of a city... The city of Tanalorn. Tenel- okay. And you just said, okay. You have no idea. That's correct. I, I, I don't have any idea. And we idea. will just... For those, for those Elric fans out there, if you know, you know. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I'm I'm an outsider. I'm one of them. Um, I love how you mentioned that, how he instantly joins up in that kind of D&D sense. Because mm-hmm. um, I love it. Because he already he even has a moniker. It's like, I'm Rakir, the Red Archer, on my quest. <laughs> to find the fable city of Tanalorn. And it's like, yeah, but you want to join in on our ongoing quest first? And he's like, yeah, sure thing. I love it. God. And um, I love how his relationship with Elric, it's very strange in that they're both these strange kind of antisocial wanderers, but they immediately form this nice little buddy relationship where they're helping each other out. And I like how um, Rakir is so obviously... Um, whatever strange place he comes from, he's obviously, like, a good person, because Yamiji is like, I'm gonna do whatever I can to help Eric. He helped me out once, he's promised to get me out of here, so now I am, I'm bravely and devotedly loyal to him. It's a really nice aspect, and, oh, see, Jordi, mm-hmm. this is where I'm having so many difficulties. This is almost the weakness of doing a book where you've already read the series, uh-huh. because the idea of Elric having a companion... And swapping them out very quickly is a very consistent thread. As Elric is the eternal champion, in Michael Moorcock's words, sure. the eternal champion must always have the eternal companion. Just like for Doctor. I've never thought about it like that. <laughs> yes, and although Rekir, for the fans you know, who know, isn't actually one of the eternal companions, this is a very common element that, like, you, they always, he, Moorcock always pairs up his leading heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Hawk, Moon, and Corum. Whenever they go out, there needs to be at least one other guy to be that loyal, steadfast friend. Mm. Um, and that dynamic does get twisted about, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in this story, as soon as we're done with Davintar, who in many respects is the companion in the first two thirds of the book, yeah. as soon as he steps back, it's like, okay, come on, we need to get someone in there. Mm-hmm. Who's our replacement? I'm looking something so, up. Because I need a visual reference to explain something. But when I um when I envision the red priest Rakir, 
I envision the Crimson Set from Dark Souls. Oh, yes, I... The Crimson Set from Dark Souls. So this is from... People give it a Google. One sec. My, I'll my describe it thinking. shortly as soon as Duncan looks at it. No, I, I know it. I, uh, I've i played uh, Early Pyromancer Build. Best set. Yes, that makes sense. Um, so the, uh, the, the Crimson Set in Dark Souls is a suit of, like, uh, robe armor where, uh, you know, you're dressed in, like, a, you know, red skirts and red robes and red gloves and you have a tall red hat but also like a plague doctor's mask. Um, and that's basically exactly how I envisioned him. Uh, there is such a grand mystique to this book that I let myself go into full um, high fantasy wardrobes. Normally, I make things pretty grounded in my head when I envision things. But in this, with people dressed up in black dragon armor with their visored helms, I was letting uh, go full graphic novel in my head, completely OTT, um, giving it all sorts of gothic mystique. I almost don't want to say how I imagine him, because it makes such a petty comparison. Okay. Because um, what I imagined him as, I went, ah, oh, yes, right here. Oh, he's an archer, and he wears red. Okay, he looks like Will Scarlet from the Errol Finn Robin Hood. <laughs> And that's how he cheerfully goes around. Yeah. I love an archer, you know? I love an archer in a story. I, uh, for, those, for, for the audience, I, I am an archer. I have a shoulder injury right now, so I haven't been able to do it for months and months. But uh, archery was my go-to sport for many years. So um, I appreciate uh, a good depiction of archery in a fantasy novel. They are few and far between. They often like to put them just so much to the side of the guy with the sword. Yes, that's true. I think um, I like that um, he he knocks up some kill counts in being an archer and he doesn't just let Elric take care of everything. Um, But um, there's a couple of noteworthy things. He gets sort of... He gets away with some of the, um, the typical mistakes that people make they describe um him drawing his string back to his ear which is um i would kind of critique as being inaccurate but there are some shooting styles where you do pull back to your ear but when you do that it's kind of further away and not as close to your face so i i permit that one and i also will let slide the idea that he can um string his bow in like string pull and fire in a second because he's just super cool like that but what what just just have your bow strong dude you think you're going to fight just keep it strong like it's not a big deal i don't i don't want to cry out i'm sure there's so many experts out there who are like i'm sure you're you're on the side that they're like yeah geordie thank you talking for us i'm mm-hmm. just there like yeah how long does it take to string a bow you just you just loop one end around the pointy stick loop the other around the other done so the, th- the thing about like um basically I assume he's using a longbow, if not like a composite, is what you tend to have to do is wrap your legs around it to bend it. And because uh, what you'd want to do is obviously bend the bow by taking it in two halves, but then you can't actually put the string around it. So you have to put it between your legs and use your legs to hold it in place whilst you bend it with one hand and then you loop the string in with one hand and then you bend down and do the other end. Um, so... Could you do it in one second? I guess, but I but you'd need to like loop both ends of a string at the same time, 
And um, that would be absurdly difficult. I'm um, imagining, for someone who's never done this then, this so this guy, they're coming along, bows unstrung, the enemy jump out, he whips it off his back, or maybe he's holding his hand, he slams it on the ground in front of him, jumps on it, mm-hmm. does like a pogo as he attempts, as he literally in one movement loops both ends, and then as he jumps back off, it just like bounces back up into his arms. Yeah, I guess that's this. it. I guess I guess that's it. Well done, Rakir. You've you've changed the game. I don't really care about realism, but um, I uh, I have a I, archer is near and dear to my heart, so I care when people get it right, and when it's depicted as cool. Um, but one last thing I'm really interested in exploring in our discussion around Elric is how really um fantastic the depiction of magic is in the book. We've mentioned before, um, in in the other books we've explored, Conan and Strange of a Dreamer, different depictions of magic. One in which magic is strange and evil. One in which magic is uh, is entirely neutral. It's simple and depicted as beautiful. I don't think any of the books we've looked at thus far have done such an amazing job of utilizing the idea of magic to convey themes as well as um as well as this book elric has such a in terms of modern lingo it's a very soft approach to magic yeah but it's also so wonder wondrous Mm -hmm. i think the you never do know quite what are the confines of this world because the magic the world itself is magical there Mm -hmm. are magical creatures there are dragons but I never feel like you really have an itinerary. You never really know where the bounds are. You know, there mm-hmm. are elementals. What sure. are the limits of their powers? You know, what's the limits of Elric's powers? Absolutely. Where do they get the first? Or it keeps kind of in ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. And I like how in this book, I feel it kind of comes in two flavours. You've got very, what we later got, I would call like D&D magic. Like mm-hmm. the magic, there's a magic mirror. Yeah. That you, uh, Ikun uses at one point. Absolutely. Like, oh, that's a magical item. Cool. It has this power. It is That's a magical item which appears in Dungeons and Dragons, the, the the mirror of soul stealing. I didn't even know that. Yep. You, wow. you should know that That's... because Nanok almost ran into it, Duncan. Be careful. <laughs> Luckily, the rest of the party was being a lot more careful in King Gorlois's treasure hoard. Anyway. Do you know what? That's how my character was so belligerent, I didn't even pick up it. Um, but you got this magic which has a defined rule set. Oh yeah, it mm-hmm. steals the souls. You can't look into it, and and then and then they plan around it. Yes, then you've got oh, God, it's so like, good. It's so good. Such a clever section, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, why don't you gush about it for a moment? Oh my God, I love this bit. So, um, Yakum has taken over this kingdom, and has this magic mirror. Which, if you look at it, it steals your souls. It's a big mirror. He's put it on top of his tower, from the center of the city, and he can just turn it around uh, to face the sea. To just wipe the minds of whoever approaches the city. And uh, it's utilized in really interesting ways to demonstrate Irkun's evilness. You know, he has this evil piece of magic. He does an evil thing by wiping minds. And we demonstrate when he's losing his grip, when he starts to use it completely recklessly. When Elric doesn't attack from the sea, but attacks from the land, he swings the mirror about over his city, not giving a shit about whose minds it steals. 
like it will steal souls, and who, who cares if it gets any of my own people? Um, and Elric combats this by, and this is set up quite well, by mentioning that he selected in his army for people with a particular disability, he discovered that all the soldiers he brought with him are blind. So as they're raiding the city, none of the defenders are able to, like, are, all have to, like, cover their eyes because of the mirror, and suddenly the blind people have this major advantage, and Eric himself is just put his visor down and is closing his eyes and and struggling his way through. Um, and it's, uh, and it was an excellent, um, an excellent little reversal of fortunes, but it doesn't compare to, um, to how it escalates after that. Now, before you get that, can I just, you've got to just look at that for a second. Mm-hmm. Is this saying, did Elric recruit these blind people from the general populace? Or is Melibonian, like, conscription just really generous on the medical exam? Like, yeah, you can be blind, you can still join our army. Uh, I believe it was stated in the book that these are people who were injured in war. So these are people who were soldiers and then were blinded in battle. Damn it, Moorcock, getting way of logical solutions. And that leads up to this just on point for Moorcock, when it's both like wondrous but also really quite disturbing. When mm-hmm. the mirror is finally shattered, you get this moment where everyone's just standing around for a bit going, oh, okay. Things seem to be okay. No, nothing seems to be wrong. And then they just hear this noise that gets more intense and more sharp and more painful for the ears. And all these sort of the the thoughts and the souls and the minds and the memories that have been mm-hmm. stolen by the mirror come flooding back out. Mm-hmm. And it's this almost like horrifying moment that's kind of captured here. You know, where people's heads are filled up with these lost memories from people from ages past of, of old lives and loves and heartbreaks and remembrances to old gods all flooding through and wiping away people's identities. It's so disturbing because not only have these people just like had their minds like taken away, it's not like the, their memories are being returned to them. It's like all the memories are coming out and they're just finding a humans. They're just finding people and just flowing in. Uh-huh. And I feel so... This is one thing... Um, this is one thing that I think that Elric sees does is that you've got this sort of personal traumas of Elric, mm-hmm. but then ever so often something will happen on the grander scale and you'll just have to sit back and go, that was too horrific to even process. <laughs> that was like thousands have just died mm-hmm. and we've got to kind of just move on. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you know what? I didn't really think about the human cost of it, that those souls are gone. They lived on in some regard, but now they've been vanquished. Irkun kind of just, like, emptied a bucket of souls into the street and was like, they're gone now, I don't care. And this kind of plays back to, like, Elric, you know, he's got this consciousness, but there's still this disconnect where, and this happens uh, throughout the series, where you'll get to points where it's just be like, Warcock just like, and then that city was destroyed. And you'll yeah, be like, yeah, his attack on the city isn't just attacking Irkun, he burnt the city down. You're right, he does. It's, it really just. And the thing is, you don't. Th- the novel itself doesn't um, dwell on this. No, it doesn't, because because Eric really isn't as good as he thinks he is. Fantasy. Eric just like, yeah, I had to do what I have to do, and he doesn't really think about the fact that like he's he's doing what could be a deeply evil deed. Um, 
He, he thinks Fantasy, he's good, but he's not actually that good. This would never happen in like a, a modern story. In modern story, it's always the heroes will sneak into the city and have a one-on-one showdown. Yeah, and the if villain. they if they consider doing something like this, then there's an argument about whether it's the right thing to do. And maybe at some point the hand is tipped such that it becomes morally justifiable to do so. Um, but I'm okay with characters doing a little bit of arson. Um, re- read uh, my book if you want to see heroes doing arson in order to get what they want. Wow, subtle plug. But yeah, well, well the book's not out yet, so who cares? <laughs> Don't even know the title. Yep, it's well, secret. you've never asked. <clears throat> Moving on. <laughs> Let's get to the exciting climax. And when we kind of just discuss that climax and maybe wrap up our thoughts on this book mm-hmm. as a whole then. I think the climax, it's great. It has a good atmosphere. It has mm-hmm. this bit of, it goes into this like this living cave, which I'm not yep. going to lie, did make me think, oh, is this a bit of a rebirth metaphor? You know, Elric gets reborn from this area with Stormbringer. I definitely think there is something very um, poignant about the fact that it's a cave that you can enter but never leave. There's no turning back. Once you've come down this path, you can't go back to the way things were before. And it was a nice, it was a good sword fight. It's the introduction of Stormbringer, and I, we mentioned this earlier. The mm-hmm. moment when Elric has to fight against the blade, fight against the nature of what he's dealing with, to mm-hmm. be merciful, is that to me is the poignant moment that just ties this first book together. Yep, solid B grade sword fight in my book. Um, it's um a lot of uh, if, uh, the the character stuff happening in it is the really excellent stuff. The actual um give and take of the fight, I don't find um. Uh, particularly engaging in and of itself. It's but it's for the best because it focuses more on Elric struggling with the sword and then making a moral decision in the course of the fight. Geordie. Hello. You have now read Elric of Melibone. Or Melibone. Elric of Melibrimborn. Or Elric of Melibone. Whichever one you like. Yes. So my friend, was it a good pick? Did you enjoy reading this book? Excellent pick, Duncan. Thank you so much for choosing it. I'm glad I finally got to delve into this this history of fantasy, and I feel better for it. I feel inspired to tell more weird D&D stories, and I'm really looking forward to, at some point in the future, uh, being the one to pick the next Elric book we read. But my next book isn't going to be an Elric book. I think I want us to... um. To keep diversifying, we've already hit one sequel thus far. I think we need to have a nice shotgun approach at this early stage of the podcast. So I think that... Uh, and actually, it was really hard for me to choose the next book. I was really stuck. And in the end, I kind of um, went for a book I wasn't really expecting. But since I brought him up so many times... Um, this next book, and actually um, relevance to this book as well, because Neil Gaiman wrote a short story, uh, which was the introduction to Elric, uh, to Elric of Melibene. Very well written. Um, as good as the rest of the Elric story, if you ask me. So well done, Neil Gaiman. And so since I brought up Terry Pratchett so much, and now Neil Gaiman, the next book I want us to read is Good Omens. Yes, I am such a fan of that book. Is that the case? Because I've I've actually never read it before. I know that it's um that it has a very successful um TV adaptation. I caught the last ten minutes of its of its last episode of the BBC radio adaptation, 
which I thought was very funny. <laughs> and when I started um, reading it on my uh, as an audiobook, I went, oh, wait, <laughs> this is the radio version. I accidentally bought the radio version instead of the book. So now I'm going to listen to both for the episode because I already spent money on it. Well, I'll probably just reread the book again and rewatch mm-hmm. the TV series because they're both fantastic. All um, right, we might get a little chance to talk about adaptations then. Absolutely. So, wrap up in Elric. People, if you've read Elric, or if you've not read Elric, well, I, really, I think there's kind of three things I would love to hear more people's thoughts on. Sure so, thing. If you've read all of Elric, please tell me. Like, write in, send it to our Gmail, which is is this just fantasy at Gmail, or reach mm-hmm. out to us on Twitter, um, is this just fantasy, Twitter, and tell me if you've read all of Elric, did I make the right decision with Geordie? Is mm, this the what's the right with? reading order? Because I'm not sure. Like things like Conan, most of the time I go, oh, publishing order. Yeah, yeah I go uh-huh. publishing. But Elric, I'm not sure. And I'd love to hear yeah. other people's thoughts. And also tell us, you know, if you've read a lot of Michael Moorcock, where mm-hmm. else, what other Moorcocks are good to read? And finally, say you may haven't read it, you know, it's open to everyone now. What is your favourite sort of influence where you've gone, that seems like Elric? You've seen it, maybe it's in Song of Ice and Fire, maybe it's been Geralt. Mm-hmm. D&D, but there's probably hundreds of us out there. What's mm. your favourite time you've ever gone, you've read something, you've gone, that sounds a bit like Stormbringer, or this character, this pale, sorceress, <laughs> tormented good guy, I think I've met him before. Those are some great questions, Duncan. I, I have something more to say before we wrap up on the subject of the order in which to read books. Um, not as comparable to um, to the Elric books, in maybe in terms of, well, a lot of reasons. But I think there is something to be said for reading things in a strange order or in publication order. Because an ex-girlfriend of mine got me to read the Shadowhunter books, which are, um, the, uh, are very much the, my idea for a lodestone for, um, for YA fantasy. And she got me to read it in chronological order, not in publication order. It was a six-book series which is then followed up by a three-book prequel series, and then a two, three-book um, sequel series, and then a sequel series to the prequel series. <laughs> she told wow, me to just start there. in chronological order, and that was a mistake. You know why? It, why? Because the prequel series is so much better than the original. It really ruined the experience of, oh, I've gone back to this person's early career um, as a writer, and I'm getting a worse product. And I only found out why years later, which is that the, um, the prequel series builds off of her own ideas, but it turns out the original six-book series is an adaptation of her own fan fiction. It is an adaptation of her Harry Potter, Draco and Ginny fanfiction. Okay, well, that's a good twist I wasn't expecting. You can look, um, look forward to us reading that at some point in the future, Duncan. No worries. I think, to just kind of put my thoughts on there, as a general, to a reader, I always go publication order, or just listen mm-hmm. to the author. Has the author put our word on this? Yeah. Um, that's partly what led me to Elric Melibone, because um, Moorcock has said, you know, he wrote it to be an introduction Mm-hmm. But I do feel people that go chronological or really promote chronological orders um, as the definitive way, it's like you, you're never going to watch Godfather 2 and go, 
no, I'm going to skip forward to all the flashback scenes and then we're going to rewind and then we're going to go... It's, that's just not how stories are told. Chronologically yeah. is how we look at history. It's not how we you need to experience a story or a narrative. But Duncan, what order should I read the Conan stories in? And that's where we're leaving off this week, everybody. I'm letting Duncan, he's, he's, he's rolling his eyes, he's foaming at the mouth, he's, he's rolling around the floor. I'm going to call an ambulance for him. But whilst I'm doing that, I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your host, Duncan Nickel. Oh, he's dying. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.